You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's episode is with instant New York Times bestselling debut author, Jenny Jackson, whose book Pineapple Street has quite literally taken the literary world by storm. Uh, It is a story of intrigue of the rich and the famous and i jokingly told her it's a a book perfect for fans of succession which is extremely buzzy right now of course and so if you're a fan of those types of stories you are going to adore pineapple street in this conversation jenny and i discuss her massive love for where she lives which is brooklyn heights it's a really fun conversation. She basically talks about the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, she was going on long walks and just became obsessed with the place that she lived. She was researching the buildings. She was looking up, you know, the prices of houses, basically that same thing that we all do every single time we go for a walk, you see a house or a building, you're like, oh my God, I wonder what that is. Uh, she took it to the nth degree of extremeness because like we all did, she had time to kill. I really love this conversation. It's something I was thinking a lot about. I am very active. I take my dog out all the time for walks. And in any neighborhood that I'm in with him, you know, I find myself doing that same thing. I want to get to know the place that I'm at. You you find people that you see frequently on those walks and you kind of conjure up little narratives for yourself about what's going on with them. What what uh, secrets do they have? You know, who are these people? And you, it's something that... Again, it's it's how stories form. So I really love this conversation. I extremely related to it. And listen, if you've ever been in a neighborhood, which we all have, I think you're going to love it as well. Before we get to our conversation, I want to give you a book recommendation. Uh, This week, I read Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These. It is a really quick story. It is about 115 pages, but it will absolutely shatter you. It is uh, set in 1985 in an Irish town during the weeks leading up to Christmas. There is a coal and timber merchant named Bill, and he is basically just taking timber and coal to the various houses in the neighborhood so that they can you know, keep their fires going and, and stay warm throughout winter. And he basically encounters something really, really horrendous and shocking happening at a convent. And he struggles with with what to do with it. Um, It's a story of hope, but it is going to floor you before it gives you that hope, I I will admit. But I loved it. It's extremely quick. Like I said, I I picked it up at the bookstore and just read it in uh, an afternoon. I think you'll really, really love it. Uh, It's a very small story with big emotions, which is the thing that I love most about books. So I think you really like it. And again, that is Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. If you'd like additional book recommendations, you can always reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. You can send me any any requests for book recommendations there. Um, if you wouldn't mind taking a second to leave me a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps people find me just a little bit more easily. And anytime you reach out to me at that email, passionsandprologues at gmail.com, be sure to let me know what the thing is that you are passionate about. Uh, anyone who does that once a month, I pick somebody at random and give them a bookshop.org gift card. So um, be sure to connect with me there. I love hearing from everybody who's listening in. Okay, that is all the housekeeping. I am so, so excited for you to listen to this conversation with Jenny Jackson, author of Pineapple Street on Passions and Prologues. 
Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Okay, Jenny, what is something you are super passionate about that we are going to be discussing today? We are going to be talking about Brooklyn Heights. Awesome. Okay. Tell me more. I believe this is where you live, correct? This is where I live. And I've lived here more or less for 12 years, but most centrally in Brooklyn Heights for the last six years. And during the pandemic, I, you know, we didn't go anywhere. And so I was just walking around and went like so deep down the rabbit hole, learning about the neighborhood, looking at different buildings in the neighborhood, um, going on real estate blogs and reading about different homes in the neighborhood, definitely looking at how much they cost. Mm-hmm. I I became a Brooklyn Heights nerd. I, I like, I'm obsessed with the neighborhood. Okay, so two things. One, I'm instantly already starting to see how Pineapple Street came to be perhaps, but- yes. I need you to know, so I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and we like to joke, like, no one loves their city more than a Clevelander loves their city. And so I feel this in my bones, but what is it about Brooklyn Heights that you are so infatuated with has made you, you know, kind of fall in love with the neighborhood? So I love it because I think there is this very interesting paradox that in some ways it is an extremely old neighborhood that is resistant to change. And the um, Historical Society has put in a bazillion restrictions to keep Brooklyn Heights the way that it is. And there are all these amazing, amazing people who've lived in Brooklyn Heights, you know, Walt Whitman, and then Truman Capote wrote In Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's at 70 Willow Street. And sorry, but I'm definitely going to tell you more about that because it's such an interesting story. Um, And there were, you know, homes of sea captains. And I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating, fascinating neighborhood. Also, there are a lot of wooden homes in Brooklyn Heights. Building wooden homes in Brooklyn has been illegal for more than a century because of, you know, fires, but they are historically preserved. And so there are these like buildings that just don't look like the rest of New York. And also like, God help you if you're trying to renovate and, you know, maybe add like a patio or something to your house here because they will stop you at every single turn. Like they will block you because they're so resistant to change. But then, you know, moving on about you know, why it's such a paradox, it's also in some ways an incredibly modern neighborhood that mm-hmm. is full of famous people and hedge funders and investment bankers and 
so it's this funny mix of like, you know, the oldest church in Brooklyn is here, but the preschool associated with that oldest church has like an NBA player who is like sends his kids there, you know? So it's this hilarious collision of old and new in this tiny little neighborhood. So I feel like this is a, I, I don't want to say like New York phenomenon, but specific neighborhoods of New York phenomenon, this like dichotomy between like, like you said, these things that are going on that have been here forever. And these, like, you just get used to these like quote unquote celebrity sightings type of a situation. Yes. And like, yeah. it is such a, I feel like it's such a unique aspect of living in specific pockets. Again, I'm like, again, I, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, like, seeing a quote unquote famous person is like seeing a Cleveland Cavs basketball player every once in a while. And it's because yeah. they're six foot nine and they stick out. <laughs> like sort of like, those are, or like seeing Michael Simon walking around, be like our famous chef that, that we have around here. But like when you, have you always sort of been fascinated or was it really like you said during the pandemic where none of us had anything to do and you're just like fell down that rabbit hole? I mean, I think that like, there is this sick thing that all New Yorkers do. I'm actually going to go out on a limb and say like all, like a hundred percent, which is obsessed over real estate. And that's just because living in New York is so hard. Finding a place to live is so hard. Everything is overpriced. The whole process of getting an apartment is like absolutely demented. Like, I mean, and I've, I've moved a zillion times. I pretty much lived in like different apartments every two years for 20 years, just because somebody raises your rent or a roommate is moving out or you want to move in with your boyfriend or whatever. And so we all spend a disgusting amount of time on um, either Craigslist or I, I personally am a street easy fan, though. Mm-hmm. I also like, I love Zillow. I love Zillow gone wild. Like I'm into all of it. I like, I spend so much time on the real estate apps and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to move. Like I just, I'm on there for sport at this point, <laughs> but the, but street easy is just like always been a fascination of mine. And it's a great way to kind of, look at where other people live, you know? And especially, I think Street Easy became extra fascinating to me during the pandemic because mm-hmm. we couldn't go in anybody else's house. We were only ever in our own house. So it was a way to kind of, I don't know, visit someone in a really sad, pathetic way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's the same. There's like, there's a TikToker who's, I think it's like Apartments of New York where the guy just like walks around and like goes to everything from like, the smallest studio apartment you can imagine to like, I think he's walked around like shares apartment or something absurd where it's like, there is this fascination of how other people live, how other people design their houses, what they pay for it. I, my two best friends live in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles, respectively. Pretty pricey, pretty pricey. Yeah. Pretty pricey. Exactly. And so they, they both do very well, but like we had, endless conversations about houses when they were both trying to purchase houses and they were showing me like I was getting such sticker shock sticker shock again like I live I live in Cleveland which I love but from like a a number standpoint like I imagine I could probably purchase a home here in Cleveland for like half of what it would cost to rent an apartment in New York City like it's just wild to me there's just there's a fantasy element to it and you know there are people who who just every weekend for fun go to open houses just Mm -hmm. to look at other people's homes. You know, that's just like, and when we were, when we have gone to open houses, it's been so funny to try and figure out like, are other people here because they're actually going to buy this place, you know? And especially like, I'm going to be honest, like I've toured apartments. There was just no possible way that I could afford, but I was like, oh my God, but that apartment is like 
on the base of Montague Street, the main street in Brooklyn Heights, overlooking the promenade. There's basically this whole row of houses that overlooks the promenade is the most expensive real estate in all of Brooklyn. And Mm -hmm. if you give me a chance to walk into one of those places, I will pretend I can afford it and I will walk through it. Absolutely. There is a, actually along those same lines um, at a previous company that I used to work for, we said that that show million dollar listings. Love it. Yeah. So our CEO, like someone in his family was on that show basically because he, he works in publishing. This is for people who are listening and I'm not being very coy about this and people know where I used to work, but like our CEO of our company has a apartment overlooking uh, Central Park like in Manhattan because works in publishing, you know, this more than anyone else. Like you have to be in New York to be involved in publishing. Yeah. And like, we saw like the episode for his apartment. It was like one of the places he lives and all of us were just like, it was not only was it a fascination, but it was a fascination of like, Oh my God, we know the person. Yes, I, totally. Yeah. I yeah, have want to have us over. What's that? You, did you invite yourselves over? Oh, I would have loved to. Yeah, he. Yeah, he's a very like unassuming, kind human being. But like when you Aww. realize, then you realize, like, oh wait, he's making. He's a very successful <laughs> human being. Like, wait a minute, we're not living the same type of life. Um, and so along those lines, like when you were talking about having this like fascination, this like going to to figure out, like, oh, I just want to see what these people live like. I have to imagine that is sort of how Pineapple Street, your book, came to be. Yes. So it was. Um, Right. I was living on Pineapple Street in a rental, um, a nice apartment, but um, uh, renting an apartment above Joe Coffee, which is like where the opening of the book is set. And I became fascinated with this other um, apartment a few doors down on Pineapple Street, purely because they have these huge bay windows. And I saw through the window that, you know, like those big Chinese vases, they probably pronounce it vase, uh, chandelier, and then a grand piano. And I like, when I saw the grand piano, I was like, really? In New York City, a grand piano? Like, mm-hmm. who has who has room for a grand piano? I thought that was the sort of thing that they were just photoshopping in when I was mm-hmm. going on Street Easy. I'm like, no, this person has one. So I started kind of dreaming about what it would be like to live in that palace on Pineapple Street. And then a funny thing happened around the same time. My friend Allie um, was living with her husband and baby in a different part of Brooklyn. His parents left their brownstone in Brooklyn Heights during the pandemic and said, hey guys, you can move into our apartment. You can just like have it, move on in. But they hadn't moved out. And so my friend moved into this apartment that was just like full, like the closets were full of her mother-in-law's clothes. Like there was no place for her stuff. And so that sort of clicked together with the other idea and became Pineapple Street, which is the story of an in-law moving into the Brooklyn Heights brownstone that belongs to her husband's family. Yeah, and so along those lines, I it's one thing to like you said, like look on like Street Easy or Zillow and like imagine what it might be like to live like these people. And like, even if you have, like I have friends who have grown up with money and like you, I'll, you know, I've gone to their houses before, but like you really don't know. So how did you go about like learning about these people's lives to be able to write a story that was, you know, like believable and fun, but also like had all those intricacies that us normies may not understand? Well, it's, I mean, it is funny, like in New York, you're just living cheek to jowl with, with people. And so, you know, earlier I was joking about 
the oldest church in, in New York, uh, in Brooklyn and mm-hmm. how there's the preschool. So that's the preschool that my kids went to. So, you know, not only is there like an, an NBA player there and other sort of celebrity parents, but you know, there, there were also a lot of bankers and so on. And the, um, the school auction is like one of the funniest things on the planet because it's a preschool. Like it's a preschool auction. Like I brought my kids there. We were doing face painting. Everything was like mostly normal. And then you went over to the raffle ticket table. They were auctioning off a child-sized Tesla. They were auctioning off a Botox party where you could invite your friends over and a famous dermatologist would come over and give you shots in your face. Like the stuff, this is a preschool. And the, the like auction items were so funny to me. And so, I mean, I feel like just by association, I get invited places and I snoop around, you know, once in a while you get invited over for a play date, you know, and I have Mm -hmm. a a four and a half year old and a seven and a half year old. And like, she's like, okay, garden level apartment. I'm like, okay, great. So I assume that meant that they live on the garden level. That's just the door they use. They, They own the whole building. And I was like, wait, where are the kids? Oh, they're two floors above us in a playroom. Like, what is this? I I feel like and and you do it really well at Pineapple Street, but I feel like there's this delicate balance of like telling a story like that where people read it and enjoy it, or like um I think of six I, I couldn't help but think of succession yeah. while reading Pineapple Street. Like I feel like I watch succession because I am so infuriated by their life. And I feel like it's like one of two things. You either can make it humorous and like not like approachable in a way that like you don't feel like you're looking in on something or you can go the complete opposite where you're just like, I'm going to make everyone absolutely hate every single person in this Totally. And I feel like, you know, if I'm being honest with Pineapple Street, I very much want to have my cake and eat it too. I want for people to have fun reading it. I want them to like the characters because, you know, I personally, yes, I'll read a book with despicable characters, um, but... I enjoy more a book where I fall in love a little bit. And so I want people to love these characters. Um, but at the same time, I do want to ask some serious questions about yeah. income inequality and inheritance tax and, you know, just the the huge moment in history we're living through where inherited wealth is, you know, greater than it's ever been. Yeah, well, and then there's, of course, like the the additional aspects of like the people who inherit a lot of like these like generational amounts of money that just like no matter what they do with their lives they can never screw up enough to to lose all of it like those people it comes with a privilege and like a a type of personality where they act like they're like greater than now exclusively because they were born where they were born and when they were born and like you're absolutely right it is really interesting and so I I am curious if you find yourself like thinking about those aspects of just like daily life being where you live. And you you mentioned like, yes, it has all of these like extremely like wealthy people, but there's also, like you said, like the place where Truman Capote wrote his books and stuff like that. Like, do you find yourself thinking about that often or are you able to kind of separate it in your daily life? I mean, I think honestly, um, one of the things that I've learned from Kevin Kwan from the writer Crazy Rich Asians who I work with is that when you're writing fiction, you can turn a place into a character and you can do that by turning up the volume on the place. And so I definitely did that with Brooklyn Heights to make it 
more extreme than it is. The reality is that, yes, there, there is that, that element in Brooklyn Heights. It's also a really normal place mm-hmm. for most of us. You know, like there are a lot of old people in the neighborhood who've lived here for generations. There are a lot of families with children who are in very normal sized apartments. You know, there's like, there, it, it's actually a pretty normal neighborhood too. Um, and, and I think that like, you know, in thinking about who I wanted to write about, I had fun pumping up the volume. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of like the, the writing process, I kind of want to nerd out about writing with you for a little bit. Cause so for people yeah. who may not know your like quote unquote day job, you are, you have made a career out of being, you know, a vice president and executive editor at, you know, a very successful publishing house. And so going about, I guess, A, what made you want to be on the other side of that process and be like, as someone who has been an editor for so long, how, what, how interesting was that about like when you got an editor to work with, yeah. like those different, this like, I imagine you are in a very unique place from a writing standpoint. All of my editor friends were like, uh, seriously, you're going to publish a book. You are brave. Like, we know how hard this is for writers. Like, seriously, you're going to do this, you know? So I think that, (laughs) I think maybe, maybe it was a little bit of a wild thing to do. Um, Do you know what's so crazy? I never understood this. Before I wrote a book, I thought that people published a book because they wanted, you know, to make money great. Or they wanted to be a writer, absolutely valid because they, um, you know, wanted fame, fortune, blah, blah, blah. I, um, I didn't actually understand that when I was writing the book, I wouldn't feel like I was finished until people read it. And it, and so the desire to publish the book was really about a feeling of artistic completion, about a feeling of sharing what I had made and wanting other people to feel the feelings that I had put in the book. And it was, it's a way more emotional and um, like just psychologically involving thing than I had ever understood. The editorial process was definitely different than what I had anticipated, which is hilarious because I've literally edited people for 20 years. I've given people editorial notes for 20 years. I knew that it was, you know, I've, I've always tried to be like really kind and, um, you know, given notes in a way that cheerleads people along. And that was really important. I didn't understand how hard it was to go back in and write new stuff after you'd finished mm-hmm. writing. It was so hard to get back in there. I did have to do a lot of reordering of the plot in editorial. That was like difficult, but intellectually difficult and, you know, achievable in the way that, you know, like if you're, if you're coloring in a super complicated coloring book, clearly I have children right now. Why am I talking about coloring books? But like, you know, you just have to be patient and do it. That part, Mm -hmm. the reorganization of the plot was about patience and diligence going and writing new stuff and getting back into the headspace that you were in when you were first writing is not about that. It's about like some weird creative thing, Mm -hmm. a tap that you have to be able to figure out how to turn on again. And that was so much harder than I ever anticipated. There's so much goodness in what you just said. So as I am querying a novel right now, trying to 
find a, a literary agent, which is the just most fun part of the process. You get to get told no <laughs> all sorts of times. Um, God, yeah. But the way you just described it, like when people ask me, you know, why, why do you want to publish a book? Like, I feel like I've never been able to encapsulate it as perfectly as you just did. Like, I don't feel like it's done until like a, yes, there is some of the like vanity and like wanting to have my name on the spine of a book. Like, yes, all of that is true. But there is this like last section of like, okay, I've written the book. I have a friend who isn't like, who is an editor who has like edited. So at least it's manageable as a manuscript to, to query. But like, yes, all of the like making some money would be great. And like, it's the wanting it to be out in the world so other people can read it. I, I, you like so perfectly encapsulated that. And then, but the other thing that I haven't really thought about that I think you also nailed right there is like, I wrote like the last words of this manuscript over a year ago at this point, like by, mm. by the time I edited it and I had an editor look at it and then I was ready to start querying it. And now I'm like going through that process it's been at least a year. And so like by the time I get a literary agent and then work with an editor, it will probably have been 18 months or longer since I was in that headspace. Like what was, yeah. what was that like? How were you able to like channel that previous version of yourself? I really wasn't sure if I could or not. And it scared me so much because, you know, they wanted me to add another 15,000 words and that is a lot. And they wanted to know more about um, Sasha, the in-law. They wanted to know about her life outside of the family. And, you know, there, I work with the writer, Catherine Heine. Um, she wrote Single Carefree Mellow and uh, Early Morning Riser. She's so funny. And I remember um, with, I think it was with Early Morning. No, no, no. It was with her novel, Standard Deviation. I asked how the main couple had met. As an editor, I wanted to know, how did this couple meet? And she mm-hmm. said, I don't know that. And I was like, you know, as an editor, I was like, what do you mean you don't know that? Like, they're pretend people, you made them up. Like, just Mm -hmm. make it up. And that information was not accessible to her. And that was not something she could put in the book. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that. I get it now. There are Mm -hmm. things sometimes you just, you don't know. And anything you write is, doesn't feel right. And so you just can't put it in there, you know? Yeah. The way that I like to think of a novel most of the times, unless it's like, um, like a sweeping novel like uh, Pachinko, where it's like you're looking at like five generations of a family. If you're looking at a story that even if it tells much of one person's life, like you still are kind of like taking a timeline of a world that whether it's like the quote unquote real world or a completely fictional made up world, like you're taking a timeline of a, of a space that you're playing in and you're putting like brackets around what the story is going to be. And that's the part you're going to tell. And so you're absolutely right. Like the, the story that I wrote begins with an elderly man. Like if an editor would have asked me like, well, how, what about the first 70 years of his life? I'd be like, I have no, no. I, that wasn't what I was writing yeah. about. Yeah. No. That, yeah. Ah. No. And if they said you had to write it, I mean, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you could. Yeah. Maybe not. Like who knows? Is that information available to you? Maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah. I so I, I know you're you were short on time and I and I, I want to be respectful of that. And I feel like I could nerd out with you about writing for like hours. But um how was like the when you received those edits and you you went back, like did you have an initial as a person who has done this for so long? did you have an initial pushback of like, I know better than you, or were you able to kind of remove the editor hat and just be a writer for this process? I would say that 
the way that I reacted was really on par actually with the way that writers I've worked with have reacted in (laughs) that uh, at first I was, you know, immediately like resistant, took some time, really soaked it all up at the end of the day, took about 90% of their notes. Mm -hmm. I couldn't take a hundred because there were some things that just um, didn't feel right or I didn't, or I just couldn't get to where it felt exactly right. And and that's true with writers I work with too. Like no writer's ever going to take a hundred percent because they understand their work the best and you're mm-hmm. helping them, you know, you're helping them move it along. Um, and, and so I feel like I, I was, I knew that I was working with people that I really admired and this sound, this sounds kind of weird to say, but I've been doing this for, I've been a, an editor for 20 years mm-hmm. and I really liked working. The editors I chose to work with are more experienced than I am. And I felt like that, um, if I was going to have any dumb ego about it, working with people who I was like, no, categorically they've done this longer, probably mm-hmm. helped me get over a hump. Like, sorry if that's gross, but I, it probably did help me. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay, I have two more questions for you. One will be really quick, but first, what do you want people to take away when they're reading Pineapple Street? Like, what do you hope they leave thinking or, you know, having thought about during the story? I hope that they finish the book and think about the possibility that we all have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, because over the course of the book, these characters all do change for the better. And they even also, the older generation, is it comes to have some real revelations. And so I hope that the book makes people feel hopeful about our ability to, um, to change our culture and to change each other's minds. I love that. Okay. Last question. I always have the author give us a recommendation of any kind. Normally I say it can be like a movie or a food or something. I am going to make you do a book recommendation because of your experience. So what is something that you think more people should know about or, or need to read or just like what's something you have loved recently that you want people to read? So it's a British author. Her name is Meg Mason. Her mm-hmm. book is called Sorrow and Bliss. And it was a sensation in England and Americans need to know about her. Sorrow and Bliss is what I call the chocolate pretzel of a novel because it's sweet and salty and you're like laughing and crying and she's kind of mean, but so funny. It's just, it's blissful. So Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, chef's kiss. It's wonderful. That's absolutely perfect. Jenny, I, like I said, I think I could keep you here for another two hours, but I want to be respectful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. What a great conversation. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the Paper Fold, where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my 
favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paperfold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.